Welcome to the Ag Emerge podcast brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. We're here to move the ag paradigm forward by helping you regenerate your soils using new ideas, research, and emerging technologies. Get ready to improve your soil, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm Kim Sheese. And I'm Monty Bottens. And we're your hosts. Thanks for joining us. Have you ever heard the saying, the second mouse gets the cheese? Well, today we'll talk about the work and practical research Monty and his team are doing on the farm to discern practices that do and don't work as we continue to fine-tune this system we call regenerative agriculture. We work to be the first mouse, taking one for the team, so you, the second mouse, can get the cheese. We discuss everything from planting green, companion cropping, to ag tech and resources that allow us to scale these practices, and we cover everything else in between. It's a fun conversation, so let's jump right in. Well, we're so excited to have everybody joining us today. We've got Monty here in the podcast studio with us, which is a big deal because I don't know if y'all know, but it's planting season, but we're wrapping it up. And so, as you know, it's hard to find uh, some time to really be together, but we got a rainy day here in Illinois. So we wanted to talk about a few things that are going on, on not only on Monty's farm, but just some things that we're observing that's going on in agriculture, different phases of the soil health adoption they're doing on their farm, as well as things that you might want to adopt or take advantage of. So Monty, it's good to see you. Good to be here, Kim. I feel like I can look in your eyes so I can tell if you're picking up what I'm laying down or getting (laughs) tired of what I'm saying. So (laughs) no, no, this is great. It's great to be inside. It's a little rainy outside today. So uh, we've been going pretty hard this last week, uh, planting and moving livestock and doing everything we need to do there. Plus answering lots of customer questions this time of year. So it's been fun. That's great. Have you gotten some stump the expert questions this year from customers? Well, we've had a lot of questions as far as in regards to planting green. That's been one of the things that is high of mind people right now. Uh, Then there's always, is this product compatible with this? And those kind of questions that we have this time of year. But yeah, just lots of great questions. We enjoy the interaction with our dealers and our customers and just moving the ball forward. It's a lot of fun. So that's one of the key things that we hope that you pick up from these podcasts is that we recognize there is no silver bullet. And so these conversations that we're having with each other, where we are presented with challenges, and then we work together to try to find solutions. And I think you've heard us talk a lot about boots on the ground. And that's really what we focus on is being out there, seeing and observing what's happening and doing a lot of digging. And there'll be a lot of root digging coming up here soon. And that's one thing we want to encourage y'all to do is to be sure to be asking questions and challenging what you might be seeing out there. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing on the farm this year that might be something new or different? I sure can. And and I want to encourage every farmer out there that's listening to this is you're always trying something new every year. So uh, keep good notes of what you've got going on, because when it comes harvest season, you can you can forget. So it's uh, 
good to write things down and take pictures. Beautiful part about taking pictures with your phone, puts a date stamp on it, puts a geo reference tag on it so you can look back through uh, what you're doing. But some of the things that we're trying, we like to pilot a lot of things um, that are several years out for most of our customers that they'd be comfortable doing. So we, we try to be, uh, as a, one of my friends says, it's good to be the second mouse because the second mouse gets the cheese. So we're the, we're the first mouse on some of these things and we're learning a lot. And uh, some of the things that we're working with are some product studies, other are system studies and agronomics and how you farm. Um, we've had uh, fulvic acid and humic acids in use in California for years. I mean, that's where it really originated. And we've, we've used that pretty much exclusively in the California market, some in Montana and Colorado, but mostly out there, you know, most of our products have it built into it. You know, we, we just haven't ever talked about it in the past because, you know, nobody knew what it was uh, more in the corn belt and it was looked upon as unnecessary, unneeded. So it's always been in our micronutrient packages and such, but decided to go ahead and increase, uh, look at placement of it. So do we put it in the uh, two by two band? Do we put it on seed? Do we do both? Um, so we've got some studies on corn and beans where it's, uh, you know, fulvic acid in row, humic acid in row, humic acid in conceal, fulvic acid in seal, and fulvic by humic and replicated and those kind of things. And Ryan got those out there and in a great way that we can get a replication on those in, in several areas. So just looking at practical aspects, how that works. So that's one of the things we have going on this year. A um, lot of experiments on the farm this year in, in the whole planting green concept. Uh, we've been doing this now for uh, probably four years, I would guess, cover crops for eight or nine years. But with the skip corridors that we've left out there, where we, we GPS index, um, you know, one row that we leave plugged on the cover crop. So we got a 15 inch row to plant into. We've been doing that for a long time with implement steering. Um, we're seeing, you know, just some really great things by being able to plant green and roll down. Now, sometimes it's, uh, on purpose that we're doing this. Uh, so typically on purpose, we like to do that in beans. You know, it's a no brainer to plant beans into rye that's as tall as you. Okay, that works almost every time. Piece of cake, great for weed control. You know, last year we did it with no herbicides in one field by doing it that way. So, I mean, that's definitely a win. For sure. And it's non-GMO beans too. So, I mean, you know, what a cost savings profit opportunity there. But <clears throat> this year we had some uh, uh, rye that got away from us because we couldn't get into the field because of all things, there's a power company working on the power lines going through the field and the chemical that we terminate with uh, doesn't allow re-entry uh, for 24 hours. So we couldn't risk um, workers inadvertently going into this field or deny them access. So that was a hot mess, but the, you know, rye got to be about two foot tall. So we planted green, sprayed, rolled it down uh, once they were out of the field and uh, looks great. These rains are taking it down, uh, should, should be, should work out well. We, we shifted our nitrogen diet, like we recommend to a lot of our customers. We are taking 40 units of nitrogen away from the side dress, shifting it up to the planter, just because we're going to have more, more nitrogen immobilization because of that uh, rye cover crop that was there. So, you know, those kind of things you can do when you build your system correctly. So 
you got to realize there's lots of steps we've taken to get to this point. So we have the equipment to where we put the first fertilizer that goes on our field is with the planter. So if we have extreme weather delays, we don't have 300 pounds of nitrogen in the field with no option but to plant soybeans on. So we try to de-risk the system and it gives you the opportunity to do the planting green type of concept. So, you know, we'll put it on with the planter. We'll also put it on side dress with Y drop and in that, in that scenario. So that's some things we've done there. Um, I think uh, we're continuing on with our growing rye and beans together called companion cropping. Last year we had 40 acres. This year we have 200. So that gives you an idea of what we think of this. Uh, we're, we're really moving forward with it. And um, so we sprayed out uh, an interesting technique, um, give some a freebie here, but, and it was Ryan's idea, point rows and rows, we sprayed out. And we'll treat those as regular because harvesting end rows of rye and beans, you run over a lot of the beans and you can't keep on the row right because they're not always GPSed and following. But we left the straight rows within the centers of the fields to harvest. So now it does look a little weird driving by. So there's there's brown on all the edges and these and then why'd they leave that square green thing out there? So mm -hmm. that's okay. Um, the road ditches aren't that deep, so people aren't getting in a wreck when they you know, <laughs> drive by rubbernecking, but, uh, that's, that's something we're doing this year and expanding on. I really like the looks of that and we'll see how we can do, if we can do that again with no chemicals on the, on that. Um, there's always a drawback to everything though. And, uh, I wanted to let people know that when we do the plant spray roll sequence on cover crops or planting green and you have non-GMO corn and non-GMO beans, you have a certain window in which you have to burn down the cover crop. And we have had, um, I use a smart forecasting app that predicts hours that you can spray within a week's time. And I remember looking at the smart forecast for one week, and I think we had three hours where there was no rain and there was no wind to be able to plant in seven days time. So, I mean, um, that is a, white knuckle ride because if you can't get it terminated before the plant comes up when you're non-gmo you're pretty limited on what you can do so uh, that's definitely a risk factor uh, that we need to reconsider because we've had some rain but this spring has been very very windy mm -hmm. and um, so you know we're, we're learning that and and observing and paying attention and we'll rethink how do we how do we do that what's the best way to do it so you are making some serious new neuropathways uh, in your brain. Uh, as Holly Green, a, a guest on our podcast uh, a year or so ago, would say, and, and that's a good thing. So that's exciting. You know, I, I just that's just Kim's way of saying I need to I need to think different. <laughs> she's she's telling me that I I need to need to sharpen up a little bit. Well, I think it's important for us to recognize that there's a lot of things that are happening on the farm that we're learning them as we go and that we're mitigating some of the risk, but that we are trying some things that are a little bit more complicated or a little finer dance, right? right. Well, if you had if you had 40 acres or if it was a 4 acre research trial and all of a sudden it's like uh, if you need to spray it, you can wait to where you have those perfect wind conditions, but 
now when we're doing it on, you know, 2000 acres mm -hmm. and we're using a custom operator, mm -hmm. that involves a whole nother level of management. So it's really great for, I, I really, really appreciate trying the practices on my farm before we recommend to other customers mm -hmm. to where we can identify those management implementation bottlenecks so that our customers don't have to go through those pains and struggles. We mm -hmm. can, we can have that out, uh, figured out ahead of time for them. Well, and the thing that I really appreciate about this style of, I'll call it researching what does and doesn't work, is that as you all know, because your listeners are hearing like Dr. Mulvaney from U of I or uh, Dr. White from Rutgers, you know, they're doing this kind of work and doing these research plots. But what's cool about having actual growers testing these things, people like uh, Rick Clark or Monty or Jason Mock or, you know, all these kind of folks that are trying it on farm. When you have a university research plot, you don't know those nuances that you just described because you're not doing it on the quantity of acres necessarily. And so that's something I think we've really seen in this whole regenerative ag discussion is that we're getting a lot of great information from the field from growers like yourself. Well, it's our mission to turn discovery research into grower results. And by by doing it ourselves and being, you know, in the field with our with our customers, that's how we make that happen. You have to know the knowledge, but application is key. In today's day and age with social media, YouTube, and those kind of things is that everyone has a, an opinion, right? And everybody loves to share their opinion. However, there's no recourse for those people if they're wrong. Right. Uh, you know, in our case, if a customer is working with us and purchasing product from us, and if we're wrong, uh, they don't purchase next year. And if they don't purchase next year, you know, that's a, somebody's income is affected. So that we, you know, we and their team members have a, a vested interest in your success. So the products are one thing, and I don't talk about products probably near enough. They're awesome. They're world-class, they work, but the system, putting it together as a complete crop production system, in addition to your tillage practices, your staffing requirements, your management expertise, your environmental context, your soils and, you know, soil rainfall temperatures, what you're trying to accomplish, all of those things is what really helps us pull the full value out of the products that we sell. And too often people will hear ideas and, oh, I'll try that and take our ideas out of context within the production system, which is not only our products, but our products and a year-long crop plan. And people will hear that one part of one crop plan that they like, and, oh, I'll go try that. And what happens is you, if you, if you make a cake and you don't have the right ingredients in it and you have, you know, too many eggs and not enough sugar and you forget the baking soda, well, you got a mess, right? Okay. So, and for those barbecue guys, you know, if you overcook it, you know, not good, but anyway, I, <laughs> you, you gotta, there's a recipe to things. There's an order to things. And we really try to help deliver that full value. Mm -hmm. Well, I think, you know, we've talked a little bit about the rain and stuff that we've had here and, and we've talked about how that's affected here. Some of your decisions or the wind has affected it, but I'd like you to tell us a little bit more about, you know, we, we start getting to see some footage of after we get a lengthy amount of rain, a quantity, and we look at the fields that are covered and there's something growing on them and we watch 
what happens versus a field where there's no cover. It's just straight black dirt and there's water ponding and stuff. But I'd like for you to talk about over the years now, the length of time that you've been adopting these practices. What does a field look like when you're walking out in it or you're running equipment in it after the kind of rains that we've had? Tell us a little bit about that and the differences that you've seen in your soil health and what you can do. Well, we really notice it when we're digging seed. The fields that we've had in long-term no-till cover crops and our biological products just have this black cottage cheese feel to them. When you can run your hand right down the row and it just crumbles apart, smells great. You just know everything's working right. You see very minimal runoff except for, you know, in the extreme weather events, you know, uh, hardly, I, I didn't see any real erosion this year at all. Um, you know, no sheeting erosion. And uh, it's, it's just pretty fascinating to see how the water goes in, how all the earthworm activity and the tenomycetes and the smell of the soil, like the ability of that soil to withhold weight, but yet you can just stick your hand into it. It's, uh, it's just absolutely amazing. And um, this fall, locally, we had really good weather and it was dry and warm for an extended period of time. Mm -hmm. And then this spring, early on, we had some pretty good weather too. And then we had set, you know, six and seven and maybe $8 corn prices. And what happened was there was a lot of tillage done last fall because we could. And then this spring, there was more tillage done because, well, you'd, you should, there's higher prices. So we need to, we need to till more to get more yield. And it's really sad. There's a lot of, a uh, lot of tilled ground in our neighborhood this year, and it's susceptible to erosion in a bad way. We had a weather event two or three weeks ago with almost four inches of rain, if I recall right, and a lot of soil was lost. It'll never come back, ever. It took thousands of years to make, and, and we just gave it to Louisiana, and, and nobody needs, nobody is able to go down and put their house on that and have gulf views, okay? It's gone. And uh, uh, fortunately, these rain events we've had here just recently have been slow, steady events, so we haven't seen uh, much excessive erosion, but I'm sure it's still there. But it, it's, it's sad, and, and it's honestly, on a personal note, it's extraordinarily frustrating to me. Um, I, I drive by and I see it and it's like, I know you people drive by my farms and see, you know, why don't you do something different? I mean, we haven't just done this for one year and been done. We've been doing this for the cover crops for 10 years, been no tilling for 25 and everybody watches everybody, what they do. They see how many trucks come off our ground, you know, they know what we're doing. What are they afraid of? And why do they keep doing what they've done? And it's just, and if anybody had a question, I'd answer it. And I, I just don't get why people are willing to destroy their soil forever. And um, it's not yours. It's, it's next person's. It's got to feed a humanity. You can't just go for, you know, five more bushels at $7 a bushel this year and screw away your ability to get any yield out of it in 40 years. And it's just mind boggling that people make those choices. And it just, it, it pains me, but it also just makes me mad. And, um, but it's theirs and they can do what they want to with it. Um, it's just sad that, um, you know, the consequences are 
once it's gone, it's gone. You can't, you can't get it back. So anyway, uh, I, uh, that's, that's struggling for me. Now I know other parts of the area that they've had, um, I've been visiting with a, a friend and uh, out in Indiana. They've had a lot of rain this year, been delayed, caused their cover crop to grow big. And they got to do plant green whether they wanted to or not. <laughs> and uh, had some success here just the past few days doing that. Dried out faster than the conventional tilled neighbors. So, you know, he was running his planter when the neighbors were maybe running their soil finishers to dry it out to run the planter a couple of days later. And you know what it's like when you get in a wet spring cycle if you get behind, you just can't get caught up. So uh, that's a great way to wick the water out of the soil. I think Eastern Corn Belt, you know, probably Mississippi River and, and East, or definitely Indiana line and East is you're planting green. That is just a no brainer because the springs are so wet. Mm -hmm. And um, so there's, there's lots of opportunity out there. There's lots of people trying different things. We just need to make it happen faster, Kim. Mm -hmm. Well, we're trying. We're taking a short break to share that the Ag Emerge podcast is brought to you by the team at Ag Solutions Network. Rooted in innovation, ASN is committed to leaving the land better than we found it, not simply maintaining it. We're here to help you navigate the balancing act of productivity and building a legacy. From practices to products, ASN is more than a new jug. It's a new way of thinking. So don't be afraid to be different. Be afraid to be the same. Contact Ag Solutions Network today at asn.farm now back to our show but you know i think one of the cool things is that as people are starting to try these different things and and we're getting it i mean you've already said there are challenges i mean there's timing issues there are things like that but i think in all situations i don't know if that's what causes people to step back from it but i think every farming management style has its level of risks and challenges and so i think you'd probably rather have an opportunity to have some choices and still have soil health uh, as opposed to, you know, some of the other scenarios. But I, I think that it's important that we just keep moving forward and folks are going to still continue to see the changes and things that you, that people that are adopting these practices are making and really seeing the changes that are happening in their soil health. And, and that's kind of leads into the next thing that I wanted to talk about because, you know, I, here I was thinking, oh, we're three, four years in, no, we're five, six years in bringing livestock back to the land. And I want you to talk about that fifth principle, um, that is a harder, even yet principle to adopt, but tell us some of the amazing, like aha things that you've seen since you brought livestock back to the land and some of the impact they've had on the soil. Well, the fifth principle of soil health is livestock integration. And a friend of mine calls it the fifth element. Uh, so it's, it's something we know that will happen. And we're trying to figure out how can we do this at scale and capture the value of it at scale in a way that we can recommend to other people. So we, we know it's a long-term project and these kind of things, we're getting far, far closer than what we were, you know, a few years ago, but there's been some exciting developments in there. And um, we could take, uh, you know, a long time talking about all the livestock integration. And if those pe people are interested in that, we can, we can certainly talk on a, on a one-on-one -on -one basis. It's something that we're probably not ready to, you know, recommend everybody do just yet. But I will warn you, if you've been working for us for a while, we're going to start pushing you to do some pilot 
studies because we know enough now that we can we can start piloting some things. But I want to think of one of the concepts we're working on on the cropland is a what we call a regen rotation, where we take a um, a field every year out of regular cash crop production and turn it into regenerative, uh, basically healing of the land. So currently we're doing it on a one-year cycle to where we start with winter cover crops, cool season cover crops, graze it, then plant summer uh, warm season cover crops, graze that, plant cool season cover crops again to set it up for the subsequent uh, soybean planting season. So we're doing that. Um, so we're coming out of that this year. We The field that we had, we did a, a strip tillage too because we changed the orientation of the rows from east, west, and north, south. And I just was looking at that here yesterday and it just is beautiful. I mean, there's lots of uh, leftover cover crop out there that's been terminated, but uh, the corn's coming up looking great. Uh, and it's also, we think, an excellent way if a farmer wants to transition to organic certification, there is a year where you've generated revenue through, you know, grass-fed beef, lamb, chicken, or pork, and versus taking a hit by planting with organic inputs and receiving conventional output prices. So we see that as a way for an organic transition step. And we're also considering doing a and Keith Burns has talked about this a little bit too, but look at a perennial crop establishment for like a four-year regeneration time frame. So rather than planting, you know, the winter, summer, winter cover crops, seed once, graze it and do production for four years, take it out and go into back into cash crops. So, which this is nothing new under the sun. This is what happened a hundred and years ago so I, it's like wow look at this new stuff and it's like yeah this is what my great grandfather and my grandfather did but um uh it worked right there's a reason they did it and the other thing i think we've seen some interesting opportunities on that regen year is um clover as a nitrogen source providing an opportunity coming out of that regen year to be corn because organic corn is uh, one of the toughest things to grow because of the nitrogen requirement and also because of the weed related issues. Mm -hmm. So if there is a way we could do uh, clover to keep it as a cover and a nitrogen source and plant corn into it and burn it back with uh, zapping or something like that, I think that's a, an opportunity. So we're working on that regen rotation and that's part of this fifth element. Now, back to your question a little more on far as what are some of the things we're seeing here? And I know we visited too about rain risks and, and, and stuff. Um, first off, we, we do move the herd once a day because there's no tillage allowed. And it, uh, when we get rain, we have to give them more acres per day because they'll actually mud up, um, you know, from trample down or make the, the grasses, the cover crops dirty. Um, they have less access to feed. So we, we give them more acres on rainy days. Plus the energy content is as much because you don't have the sun. So they'll eat more on a rainy day because they have to eat more to get the energy re requirement that they need. So I find that interesting. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, you know, there's, it's not without uh, challenges. You know, not everything's rainbows and unicorns when it comes to, to doing these things. We still get some trailing uh, to the water tank, even in 24 hours. And that's just cattle being cattle. 
like to like to follow the guy in front of them. And um, it it can be a negative if the trail is, you know, with the slope. So try to be smart on where we put the water sources so we don't create an erosion channel. Um, the other thing that's uh, a little bit tough is they'll leave it a little bit pugged up when we have rain. So you have to have good planting equipment that can overcome that. You know, we use Delta Force. We drive a little bit slower when it's in rough ground and it overcomes that. And we get good seed to soil contact, good placement, good singulation, good depth control. Final thing, you know, that we run into when uh, livestock um, things that I've seen is creating a balanced diet. So we've got cover crops that we're grazing that when we start, they're maybe three inches tall. Okay. And then by the end, they'll be headed out, you know, watery seed. And the, we don't have control over what we feed them because this is what they have that day. So uh, the diet will vary quite a bit over 45 days. And I noticed when we moved them on Friday, they'd been back to regraze for a third time in this field that's just done a great job. And it's really hot forage and they were really loose. So, you know, you just don't have that control. You try, but that can be a little bit of a challenge with this. So we're learning these things. We're trying some different planting dates. We're trying different mixtures, uh, different sizes of paddocks, everything we can do management wise to essentially we're responsible for creating the TMR when we plant and feeding the TMR by how we fence. So those are some interesting things. Yeah, that's that's pretty cool. I mean, I never had a fence calculation and a ration calculation before. So uh, that's that's pretty cool. You know, it's it's fascinating to me because it doesn't taste like what you would consider grass fed beef. And I believe it's because of that robust cover crop mix that they're eating that, that you're just really getting just a rich flavor, a beef flavor uh, in that meat. And that's, that's fun and also a lot of fun to eat. So, you know, like we said, nothing new under the sun. When we talked with Will Harris a couple of weeks ago, I guess it's been, you know, he talked about how he adopted the practices his granddad had done 130 years ago. So I think the thing is that you could apply this example to a lot of different things in life, but for sure with agriculture, sometimes we change the way we did things with a certain goal in mind. And we didn't really consider some of those other consequences of, of some of those things. So the good news is that we're learning creatures and being a lifelong learner is a, a good thing. Let's talk about what soil health means in real time to those input costs that we see or what, you know, what changes happen? What are some of the things that we know, like less passes over the field, that type of thing? What does that look like in a year where we're seeing some of these costs going up? Well, in particular, you mentioned fuel. Um, less passes, obviously, uh, fuel direct correlation there. Um, water use efficiency for those who irrigate with uh, diesel pumps is important. A lot of those have transitioned away to electric or natural gas pumps these days. But I think something that people forget about is the dollars breaker that you spend on fuel is, is pretty small in compared to the amount of dollars per acre you spend on nitrogen. And a lot of times energy sources track with each other and nitrogen being made from, uh, uh, you know, natural gas 
that will um, that will track up. And so fertilizer use efficiency is very, very important. So the use of cover crops, no-till and time nutrition, putting out exactly what the plant needs when it needs it, which is what the power to grow you know, system is, uh, really improves our nitrogen utilization efficiency. So, you know, we, we target 150, 175 pounds on our crop. Uh, we have almond producers in California using 80 pounds when you're supposed to use 350 to 500, you know, in combination with, with compost, but, you know, applied nitrogen, um, is definitely an area where we can, uh, do a lot better at saving. And plus, uh, you know, we, we've talked about this before, but if you look at the fact that if you're not that efficient on nitrogen, all of the, if the plant doesn't use it, okay, we, we really don't, we look at what we spend on nitrogen. We look at the check that we write, but we forget what that fate of nitrogen is. And, and this is another one of those things that gets me going. If it leaches, it leaches into groundwater, causes blue baby syndrome and other animal health issues. If it runs off into streams, it causes algae bloom in the, in the rivers and streams, causes municipalities such as Des Moines to have to clean it up and cause extra costs. And then if it volatilizes and goes into the atmosphere, it's nitrous oxide, which is much more powerful than carbon dioxide as far as a greenhouse gas equivalent. Uh, whether or not you believe in global warming or whatever, are we supposed to be pumping nitrous oxide into the atmosphere, folks? You know, no. <laughs> and, and, and then the other thing is, is that we totally forget about it. Here we are trying to build up organic matter in the soil. When you overapply nitrogen, it's seeking carbon to balance. It will literally burn carbon out of your soil. So you tell me how much a little extra is. You know, the other day I was talking to somebody, oh, well, what's your yield go? Oh, uh, we're going for 300 bushel. Okay, well, great. Well, what's your, what's your, you know, APH? Well, our APH is only 190, but boy, last five years, we've been 225 to 240. So it's going up every year. We got to shoot for 300. And I'm thinking, no, you don't. You need to shoot for 240 to 250 because you're going up. You don't need to be five years ahead on your nitrogen diet today. And, and that the reality is, is if you're not growing corn at 0.6.7 pounds uh, per bushel, you got a leak in your system because your soil's not working for you and you're over applying somehow, somehow, somewhere. So I think, yeah, fuel costs and everybody looks at the checks. I look at if it's not being utilized by the plant to the point that you're over applying, and let's just give you the benefit of the doubt, three quarters of a pound per bushel of, of corn. And we can get all the equivalents. I don't know them off the top of my head and all the other crops that we work with. But to the point that you're over applying that, it's going somewhere. And all of those places that it can possibly go are bad to worse, period. So I, I think we need to be thinking about saving this place that we're living on that's getting smaller and smaller every day versus necessarily the, the fuel savings. But I appreciate that jump-starting the, the thought process. I think it's just important to have that conversation and all the more reason to look at other opportunities. And But what I find is that sometimes the dollar drives 
change. And regardless of what your motivation is for changing or making those changes, you will find some good solutions along the way, even if they weren't maybe directed toward that soil health goal in the beginning. So I think nothing is more surprising to people. I was just talking with a friend this weekend and he said he planted green and, you know, he's doing a lot of great things. And he said, we've got earthworms in our soil. And he said, and we haven't had those. So, you know, that's the kind of thing where you see life coming back and, you know, you were talking about how the nitrogen burns, you know, burns the carbon and just go listen to Dr. Mulvaney's podcast and research. It doesn't take long for you to see what's going on. And so, well, the friend that Kim was referring to as really sandy ground and earthworms do not like sand ground because it's too abrasive to their skin. But what happens as the cover crops come in, we're adding organic matter there, but we're adding the roots and the carbon exudates in there that causes the sand to flocculate together. And the worms will come back because it becomes less abrasive to them. And so what do those worms mean to that sandy soil? It means you can go fishing, I guess. <laughs> but no, the worms are, are the, um, the top of the food chain in the soil right? Mm -hmm. So when, when you see the worms, uh, you know, everything else is, is cooking pretty good. That's exciting. And that's not the first time we've heard that. We've heard Steve Groff talk about you guys doing the happy dance in a field where you saw earthworms. I mean, it's just kind of an indicator, but it's something that gets you exciting. I think that it's important to know that these, that there is no silver bullet, but there are opportunities to make excellent changes in our system approach to things. So we just, you know, we just really wanted to have this conversation today because sometimes we like to just sit around and talk about what's going on. And the kind of cool thing is that you really get an opportunity to see across the country what's happening. You get to look at a lot and see a lot of different soils. And so um, sometimes we kind of get a little tunnel vision, you know, that we're in one part of the country. And the cool thing is that taking ideas from other parts of the country and moving them across really works too. So I think that's what's helped you with your perspective on things that you've done. You've done that in California, taking, you know, Midwest ideas that direction for some of those things. So that's great. Well, we can all learn from each other. And uh, I, I think it's important to, to listen to the voices who are doing it. And if it's, if it's all perfect, something's wrong because <laughs> there, there's always something can be better. And uh, I'm, I'm just a, I'm rather pragmatic person and, and like to, you know, I'm not afraid to try new things, but I'm also not afraid to see what I, what was wrong with what we tried and that's how we get better. And I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. So I think, you know, we've got a fair amount of things we're, we're trying here and really in the whole systems-based uh, approach. And um, uh, I think there's a lot to come, but the trouble with the systems-based research is, you know, it takes a year to set it up, you know, a year to do it. And then if you realize, oh, I wish I would have done the setup different, you know, the, the research cycle is, is so slow. And a lot of, a lot of systems research isn't done because it, it doesn't sell stuff, right. you know, and most research is done to sell stuff. You know, we're here to, obviously we sell stuff, but we want the farmer to use our products in combination with the right and the best practices to improve their soil the most over time. And, uh, because at, at the end of the day or in, end of your farming career, you know, that's, that's really what matters. Um, 
is is being being profitable, but then also leaving the resource in a far, far better condition than what you started with. I'm just excited to be able to share with our listeners things that are happening on the ground. I think a key takeaway is that you on your farm can be doing as much practical research as what you're reading about that's happening in a test plot somewhere. So just dig in, try some stuff, see what happens. Don't risk the whole farm, but try some things, but talk with people who are doing this and find out what other growers are doing and how they're doing it. And there is a huge network of people. And if you need to know where to start, go listen to some of our podcasts or our people out there. They've all got websites. We've got resources out there and really start plugging in and engaging with these folks that are making these changes. If you think somebody will turn their head and look at what you're up to, I guarantee you that's probably going to happen. And uh, that might be a good thing. So there's always a good old Bonnie Raitt song that said, let's give them something to talk about. So maybe that'll be our theme. But Monty, is there anything else that you wanted to add? I did want to add a little bit about, uh, you know, ag technology and, oh, and yes. kind of some updates of what's going on out there in the landscape. And in particular, I try to focus on ag technologies that will enable regenerative agriculture. Pretty, pretty amazing. You've probably seen Raven uh, announce their, their platform now uh, with the acquisition of Smart Ag a year ago in DOT. And uh, they've come together with an automated solution. I think as we get more automated, that's going to allow us to do less chemical or chemistry-based uh, agriculture. So, you know, that, that's pretty exciting. Uh, another person that uh, we've been involved with, and if you're at Ag Emerge, you heard him present, Mike Turzo uh, has, they fully commercialized their hydropulse unit, and they also have a uh, heavy-duty off-road electrified vehicle, a hybrid and electrified vehicle that uh, is going to be coming to market here soon, but the hydropulse is out there, and it's being used on uh, all sorts of over-the-road trucks, because most of the over-road trucks now are going to electric, uh, so it's uh, kind of interesting. Uh, all the majors are pushing for electric trucks here in the next couple of years, so That'll be part of the steering systems on there as electric over hydraulic. Uh, herd dog, um, you heard uh, Melissa uh, pitch to us there and Ag Emerge the first year. They just have their first commercialized uh, uh, biometric ear tags are available on the market now. So we can know exactly the health of the animal, where it's located, if it's uh, ready to give birth, if it's in heat, if it has any sort of issues, that's uh, now full-scale production ready. So that's kind of fun to see that, you know, a little less than, uh, well, about two years ago. Uh, Farmland Finder is kind of interesting. They've, he's pivoted to a uh, thing where it's, uh, you know, the person that we buy ugly houses kind of concept, but it's uh, we buy we buy farmland then lease it back to you. So he's creating a platform to where investors who want to invest in farmland can buy the uh, asset from the farmer, but lease it back on long-term lease. So... Um, that's an opportunity for farmers to expand and free up uh, net worth that's inside of there in cash flow challenging times uh, to grow their operation from an operations perspective instead of from a land perspective. A uh, couple that were interesting here that we just had an opportunity to visit on or um, be partners with. One is a company called Ferronim, and it's actually pheromones for nematodes. Uh, two modes of action. One actually helps beneficial nematodes that are sold in Europe right now because of a ban on clopyrifos. Uh, they use beneficial nematodes to, for a lot of insect control. 
So it actually doubles the effectiveness of these beneficial nematodes. The other product they have and it'll be available in a couple of years is called Ferricoat. And it is a ferronym that repels plant parasitic nematodes from plants. So soybean cyst nematode, corn root nematode are a problem. The seed treatment will go on. And rather than being a nematicide that is killing, you know, and in insects and such. So from a regenerative uh, standpoint, we're essentially putting a, a pheromone on there and repelling these uh, pests away. So, you know, uh, no, it's very targeted, no offside effects, uh, degrades in short periods of time. So just an amazing product there. And then the final one that we're going to be testing on our farm here soon is a product called No Fence. And if you think of um, invisible fence for dogs, this is invisible fence for cattle, uh, sheep and goats. And you can actually put a collar on the animal. You can draw on your iPhone where you want them to graze today and they will graze in that area. And when you want them to move, you tell them to move. And it's really fascinating, uh, no more fences. So we can put up a perimeter fence just for you know, um, safety reasons and such, but all the interior fences are doing a single move a day will be uh, done. But the cool part is, is now we can move it multiple times a day with no additional costs or infrastructure. So we can go to the 10X moves like we've tried before, 10 times a day moving, really increase their intakes, increase feeding efficiency and those kind of things. And then the fun thing down the road is we'll incorporate that with uh, biomass imagery so we'll know what our pounds are uh, of biomass and effective uh, biomass that's out there per acre. And then we can automatically, uh, based on the pounds that we're having on the herd, we can automatically uh, select that, oh, today you need uh, 37.2 acres in this area, where this next day you need 42.6 acres because it's not growing as well or different. So those kind of things can all be automated decision tools and if we can get that, uh, then the barrier to entry for livestock integration will be dramatically reduced. So uh, excited to be a part of that team. And I really see uh, fenceless technology, along with a couple other things. Uh, uh, I'm not going to give a spoiler alert. There's some things in the pipeline. But uh, fenceless technology is definitely a, a keystone to making livestock integration a possibility. So pretty excited to work with No Fence. Um, they're nofence.com out of uh, dot no, excuse me, out of Norway, and um, uh, looking to do the testing and the and the distribution for them here in in the U.S. So pretty excited. That's really exciting, and not just the being able to move them by drawing it out, but also the biomass function. I mean, talk about taking it to the next level. I'm a little disappointed that you're not going to be like rolling up wire anymore. I mean. That's like wire is your favorite. Yeah, there's an art to it, but you can only you can only handle so much art. You don't <laughs> you don't need the art 365 days a year. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's got to be exciting. And incorporating it with the data that you're going to be getting off of that is really cool. And, and it'd be good to have the biometrics from herd dog as part of that too. And wouldn't that be something? Kind of interesting how this works together isn't as a that, system. Isn't that something? Wow, soil health, cover crops, biometrics, fenceless imagery 
all these things we've been talking about and automation products. So, you know, this is what it's like here in the podcast studio where uh, constantly the gears are turning and we are trying to learn new things and discover new things that will help you to improve your system. Well, that, you know, livestock came off of the land because it wasn't profit competitive mm -hmm. with grains. Okay. So if we truly want livestock back on the land, it has to be profit competitive with grains. So the way we're going to do that is we have to get the costs out. Okay. So the number one cost labor, we have to get the labor out. But part two is, is we have to get the production efficiency up and equivalent to CAFOs, mm -hmm. you know, and we, we've got some room to work with because on the CAFOs, we've got all of the energy requirement. We have all the manure distribution requirement. We have all the capital intensity required to build the CAFO. So, you know, we don't have to be quite as good as the CAFO, but we're still going to have to be better than what we're doing today. Mm -hmm. And then that's one portion of it. So we got a lot of opportunity to work there. But secondly, people want product raised in this way and they're willing to pay more for it because it tastes better it's better for them it's better for the environment better for the animal better for the soil better for the plants it's just plain better doing it this way so that extra value that we create in the end product we need to capture that and bring it back to the farmer not leave it at jbs okay. cargill not leave it at adm bungie not leave it at all these middlemen processors, grocery stores, and all that jazz. So we take a portion of the extra margin that we're able to create on the end product. If we make the efficiency greater and we make the productivity greater, now we have a profit-centric business model that can compete with grains. Then a farmer is not out there trying to decide, oh, should I plant corn or soybeans? They're out there to decide, Oh, should I plant a forage crop? Should I plant a grazing crop? Should I have a perennial crop? Should I have a permaculture crop, nut crops and such? Or should I have corn, beans, wheat, you know, milo, oats for oat milk, you know, uh, all this diversity to bring in principle three and enable principle five to where we can get um, a healthy functioning ecosystem, farm level ecosystem again. And when we do that, we create long-term soil health because it's the economically most viable thing to do. Right. So then when somebody decides to put out a whole bunch of nitrogen or run a whole bunch of tillage, when they could have been doing something else that was more profitable, you're right, then they'll do it. Well, as you can tell, we're kind of excited about what's going on here. And, you know, there's always something to be investigating, figuring out, learning, and that's what we're excited about doing here on our Aggie Merge podcast and, and figuring out what works for you folks. And as you can tell, we're not just in it to win it for us, but we're in it to win it for everybody. So we're passionate on a, on a level, not just for individual growers, but for, you know, the world as a whole. Well, once again, we always appreciate you all listening. And, you know, if you have ideas or things that you think we need to be talking about, we'd love to hear from you as well. And Monty, as always, it's nice to be in the studio with you and glad that you've had a safe season planting. And we're looking forward to hearing some of the results of things that you're finding this growing season. So that's great. Thanks, Kim. It's been a lot of fun. 
We sure hope you've enjoyed listening today, and we hope you've gained some more insight into the ideas and discovery work we're doing to bring these practices to you. If you'd like to learn more about what we're doing to help growers implement these soil health practices, check out our website at asn.farm. And there you can click on links to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. There's a lot of great things happening and always something to learn. Thanks for listening.